nice to have some old members of the band back this morning. So, it's uh, been a while. So, good to see you all. It's good to see you too. If you take out your phones, you know you can use the QR code and get the sermon notes. You don't have to take a picture of it. In fact, if you take a picture of it, it won't work. All right? You just turn your camera on and hold it up, and you don't have to do this. You can just sit there and do it from where you are. Or you can get up and go get a paper copy. <laughs> you can also get this week's update. Did you know that? You can, you can get the update from Friday, and uh, that's, there's a choice for that. You can fill out your Connect. You can give. I think those are the four options. So uh, take advantage of that if that's your thing. So we are continuing in our series of discovery. What's important to God as we return from a time of separation? We've been apart, now we're coming back together. As Judah returned in several waves to Jerusalem after their exile, what was important to God? And we know from history that the prophet is about to go silent. There isn't going to be another prophet until John the Baptist appears some 400 years later. So what's important to God during this period as he sets them up for this period of, of no prophets? He began in early in the, in the book by um, talking about and exploring the concept of their cheap worship. They were just bringing their junk. They would bring the lame and the sick animal to have it sacrificed. And he began to explore this concept that they didn't treat and honor God as God. And they didn't, therefore, do what God told them to do. They had bad preaching and a low view of Scripture. And the idea was, you know, what we're doing isn't all that bad or sinful, or maybe God doesn't even care, so let's just keep this up. Now there's a third area that Malachi says is very, very important in their lives. We're going to begin this morning by reading the text. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the book right before Matthew. It's the last book of the Old Testament before the New Testament opens. But as I read the text, I want you to listen to a phrase. It's repeated five times uh, in our text in, what, six verses. And the word in, in the NIV, it is unfaithful. In the King James, in the New American Standard, it is uh, deal treacherously. In the New Living T Testament, it's, it's faithless. And it means, the well, the Amplified puts it together, deal, faith, deal faithlessly and treacherously, in case you missed the point. And it, is the, it carries the idea of pillaging something, stealing something that was supposed to be protected. And it's tied very closely to another word that's found twice in our text, and that is the word covenant. That's found in verses 10 and 14. A covenant is a solemn, it's a binding agreement between two parties. And they've taken an oath to assure that this takes place. Closest thing we would say, it's, it's a document that's been notarized. You've both agreed to this agreement. All right? So Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Did not God create us? Or did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. 
As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It is because the Lord, it is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the, coven, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not, God made, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. As we try to understand what this last prophet is teaching us, God cares that they honor him. God cares that they obey him. And before the voice of the prophet goes silent, God cares about something else. He cares about your marriage. Is God at the center of your home? I think I finally understood this passage after seeing John Piper's outline. So I'm going to use his three points this morning. Malachi, in this text, says three things about relationships. Number one, he says, keep faith with others. Don't allow your relationships to rupture. Verse 10, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? You know, Abraham, they knew it, was their earthly father. And he kind of now takes this concept and says, but you know what? God is your heavenly father. Isaiah 64, yet, O Lord, you are our father. We're the clay. You're the potter. We are the work of your hand. And as believers, we, we share a community together with God as our father. Same father. Therefore, we need to keep faith. We need to be faithful to one another. And the word profane means to wound or to dissolve. Has another believer wounded you? Have you wounded another believer? My guess is probably at least once. And maybe there are some relationships, it would just be easier in life to just dissolve them. And he says you can't do that. It's easier to avoid people you don't like, and treat them as if they don't exist, correct? Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Romans 12.18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We keep faithful to God by maintaining relationships and don't allow them to rupture. Second thing, Number two, keep faith with God. Don't unite with an unbeliever. See, God's people not only wrecked their promise to each other, they had disengaged from God himself. Chapter 2, verse 11 begins with very strong words. It says, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Judah. 
Detestable means it's an abomination. This is bad. You know, it's just reserved for like idolatry and witchcraft. It's morally disgusting and abhorrent. And he says, Judah has desecrated the sanctuary that the Lord loves. It's the same word translated as profane in verse 10. The word sanctuary literally refers to the holiness of God, his, his distinctiveness, his separateness, his holiness. And what is it that they were doing that was so revolting to this separateness of God? What's well, found in the end of verse 11, they, this is what they're doing. By marrying women who worship a foreign god. The Bible is full of examples of what happens in your life if you are joined together with an unbeliever. When Judah comes back from captivity, they come to the land, and men, they saw these beautiful foreign women. One writer said they saw beautiful foreign foxes that lived in the land, and they wanted to hook up with these heathen hotties. <laughs> and so what did they do? Well, they were already married, so they divorced their wives and they married the hottie. And these women worshiped false gods. And it's interesting here in this text, the word for Mary includes the word Baal. Okay, this was a sensual religion, so it's an ongoing temptation to the Israelites. They faced this for years. Numbers, chapter 25, verse 1. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined them in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the, and the Lord's anger burned against them. It's never been God's plan to marry outside the faith. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. The concept of unequally yoked comes from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10 where they would, you know, yoke the oxen together. They were not allowed to put an oxen with a donkey because of the different sizes and the different strengths. And, you know, it, it's not going to plow a straight line. They're uncooperative. But if you put two oxen together, it's going to work. They're about the same size. They can pull the load. And the application to marriage is obvious. A believer yoked to an unbeliever if they do that, it's just not going to go right. It's not going to be straight. Paul reinforces that with some rhetorical questions in 2 Corinthians 6. The New Living Tr Translation puts it this way. How could goodness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? The answer to all these questions is no way. They're incompatible. There is no harmony. He can't. None. See, if you claim to love God and then willfully choose to unite yourself with an unbeliever in the most intimate relationship this side of heaven, the Bible says, the Bible says you're desecrating the holiness of God. Now, before you feel piled onto, there's a great word in there, the love. He says, in this first message ever to them, at 1-1 or 1-2, he says, 
don't forget, Jacob, I loved you. And here the word comes back again. And in verse 11, he reaffirms that he has strong affection for his people and for his sanctuary. And the reason his admonition is so strong is what? Because he loves you. He cares about you. He doesn't want you to take any action. And he doesn't want you to bring anybody into an intimate relationship in your life that will replace him on the throne. Verse 12 teaches that that those who go ahead and marry someone who's not a, a spiritual soulmate, you might be asking God to turn his back on you. And I know that sounds strong, but look at the verse. It says, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Now, let me make two points very quickly before we blow you up. Number one, it is possible for an unbelieving spouse to come to know the Lord and to come to Christ. You've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. And if you're married to someone now who isn't a believer, then you pray for them fervently. You love them biblically. And you do what you're, what you're taught. 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 3, cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kindness that God delights in. And number two, if you're married to a non-believer, you don't get out of that relationship. The New Testament is very clear. Don't leave it. He said specifically to the people in Corinth who were in that situation, if you have an unbelieving spouse, spouse, they are sanctified. They are set apart. God can work in their hearts and lives through you. So keep praying and providing an environment for God to work. Now, to those of you who still have the choice ahead of you, however... You need to settle it in your mind, in your heart, before romance gets involved, that you're going to honor your life and put Christ first and marry a believer. And be careful who you date. Missionary dating, which is defined as, well, if I date them, I can lead them to the Lord. Be careful. You're playing with fire. That's it can work sometimes. But once emotions get involved and romance is in the air, who has more influence? It's often the non-believer. And it's tragic that one of Israel's greatest kings, the one who was chosen to dedicate the temple itself, got into huge trouble because he never made that decision in his heart to follow God no matter what. It started in 1 Kings 3, verse 3, where we read, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of David, his father, except one little tiny thing, that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. That's a no-no. In 1 1 Kings 10, he deliberately obeys God by multiplying horses, by getting his army, accumulating chariots. He's accumulating in those days, which in current time would be, you know, his weapons of mass destruction. He was going to get that to keep himself safe. And so pride entered his heart, and he thought he was impervious to temptation. And little did he know, you know, the spiritual slack is picking up in his life. And then 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 11 reports what happens in his life because of this. Verse 2, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He brought women into his court from all over the world, and he fell in love with them. 
He ran after unbelieving women. And he had 700 wives. He was busy of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. I guess so. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And I think you could make a case that because his heart was divided, the kingdom that he left was divided. And it split in two after he died. Because here's how it often happens. You're not really fully committed to Christ. And so you'll be tempted to compromise and give your heart to someone who isn't sold out to the Savior. And that will begin a bit of a slippery slope in your life. On the other hand, if you determine to be fully devoted and trust God and obey Him, then you can make a decision today to avoid that problem and all kinds of trouble before your emotions become entangled with an unbeliever. So we need to keep our faith with each other by making sure our relationships are maintained. We need to keep faith with God by not uniting with an unbeliever, let them move our heart away from him. There's a third example of keeping faithful. Number three, keep faith with your spouse. Don't get divorced. Now, he makes some observations about chapter 2, verse 16. In the New American Standard, it says this, I hate divorce, says the Lord God. All right, God hates divorce. Observation number one. You cannot water that down. That's what the text says. Second observation, God does not hate divorced people. Many of you are the victims of it. Some of you are suffering through the incredible pain these days of it. But whatever the circumstances are in your life, God doesn't hate you. He loves you. And sometimes we forget that that's not the only thing God hates. He gives us a nice list. <laughs> Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord hates, eh, seven, that are detestable to him. Guess what's not in the list, by the way? But haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deserves wicked scheme, devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. He hates all of that. But we kind of excuse, we don't make a big deal about that, right? Hmm. Another observation is that God does not forbid all divorce. There are exceptions to this no divorce policy in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that if an unbelieving spouse wants to break it off, let him go. In Matthew 5, Jesus recognized that in the case of adultery, the marriage vow is broken. But having said that, God's heart is always, always for reconciliation and restoration of the marriage covenant, if that is possible at all. And the church has not always been a healing community. And I recognize that the church in general hasn't always been an oasis of understanding. And in some instances, the church has been overly harsh on individuals stung by divorce, and that's bad on us. And we've not done a good job in providing you with the support that you need. 
And for that, I'm genuinely sorry. But I'm not a marriage expert, and I've not walked in your, sh in your shoes. So don't assume that I know everything about how to solve a marriage. I'm not a perfect husband. Don't ask her either. <laughs> and you have experienced pain that I will never experience and never know. I'm not Dr. Phil. I'm just a believer trying to honor God in my marriage and to put him first. And not doing that very often very well. But why? Why does God care so much about the marriage relationship? Verse 14. You ask why? It was God not accepting their offerings. It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. And though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. That's parenting. That's another subject. So be on guard for the wife of your youth. Why does he care? Gentlemen, here's why God cares about, about your marriage. Because you married his little girl. You married his little girl. He's your father-in-law now. Hmm. How would you like him? Well, you do have him as your father-in-law. But you want him on your side. And God says, you married my girl, my little girl. And you think I care more about the offerings that you are bringing on Sunday morning than how you're treating my little girl? Are you serious? What kind of a God do you think that I am? I'm a witness to every tear that you have caused my little girl to shed. I see it. And God's saying to Malachi, this is kind of going silent here for 400 years. Make sure you let them know how important this is to me. Don't let them forget that I care deeply about marriage. And I care deeply about the marriages of my kids, my children. And ladies, you married his son. He might be a bonehead. But he's God's child if he knows the Lord. And we think that it doesn't matter what we do for six and a half days a week in the marriage relationship as long as we show up and sing some songs on Sunday morning. Are you kidding me? Verse 16, New American Standard, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, some translations say with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Covering your garment with wrong, it's a very picturesque term, a fascinating word. It comes from a Jewish wedding where at the point in the ceremony, they're standing there and, and the guy takes his cloak or whatever, his outer garment, and he takes it off and he puts it on his bride. And all the mothers, are, it's very emotional. She's crying. And this is the, kind of the heart of it all. But what he's saying is this. All that I am, all that I offer as protection to you, everything, I give it to you. All my protection, all that I am, is now available to you. You will wear it. And God says, 
you know, I know what that garment has meant to her. I know the violence. I know now the bitterness in your heart. You have clothed your spouse with wrong, and you've made me be a witness to it. I am a witness to the words you've said to her. Your anger, your bitterness, the resentment. And don't you get it? I am more interested in what's going on inside your home than I am what's going on inside the church. So maybe we need to freshen up our marriages this morning. Because this is serious stuff. Next week, yes, it is the actual 4th of July. And we're going to talk about marriage again. It's okay. And we're going to dive a little bit deeper and sit on Malachi's couch because he has some very significant things to say to us. So we're changing the plan. But this morning I want to make three practical statements about marriage. If you're married, I don't think any of these will shock you. If they do, things probably aren't going real well. <laughs> Number one is this. Marriage is not easy or fair. Marriage is not easy or fair. In marriage, you're going to have to do some stuff that is very hard. Very hard. That's what marriage is. It's not easy or fair. There are things God is going to ask you to do in a marriage, and your reaction is going to be, she doesn't deserve that. He doesn't deserve that. Well, I might do it, but not until they do that. It's just not fair. If we learn anything about marriage from the Bible, it is a very simple statement. It is trouble. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. For the sake of the kingdom and to have an undivided heart, yeah, stay single. Because marriage is not easy. Why not? Newsflash, you married a sinner. And so did they. You married someone who wants to put themselves first in everything, just like you do, by the way. And if you enter a marriage thinking everything is going to be 50-50, don't ever forget that you married a sinner. And I'll, you know, it's not, I'll take care of my half of this thing, you take care of your half of this thing, and we'll be fine. It doesn't work that way. That's really funny if you think that. Two sinners from two very different and, and unique backgrounds and experiences, they come together in this very romantic ceremony, and now they're going to do life together. Easily? No, not easily. Because these two people are both asking one question, what's in it for me? How do I get what I want? And they're two people full of pride and anger and selfishness. And they each want to put themselves first. And it's not going to happen unless you both work at it. Marriage is a lot of work and it will never be fair. If you wanted to en enter a fair relationship, you should have joined a chess club. Because in a chess club, there are rules. And everybody has to follow the exact same rule. And the pieces can only go certain places. And there's a timer, and you have your allotted time, and you make it. And they get their allotted time. 
And then it's going to be your turn. In a marriage, you might have to wait a decade for your turn. It's not fair. No, it's not. And it's not easy. Number two, love is a choice, not an emotion. You know at the core this is true. But we talk all the time about falling into love. But we do not mean you fall into true biblical love. We love the passion of relationships. And yes, you can sleep with someone and it will be fun. And it will generate all kinds of emotions, wonderful emotions. But that isn't love. It's not biblical love anyway. Because if you can fall into love, guess what? You can fall out of love. Do you really think that someone, somewhere along the line, you and your, you and your spouse fell out of love? Is that what happened if you got problems? You fell out of love? Actually, that's not what happened. What happened was that you fell out of the fun intimacy. And you fell out of fun sex. And what happened really was this. Somewhere along the line, you fell out of choosing to love the other person. And since that's true, guess what? You can restart love if you really want to. And Malachi begs us to go back. Don't break faith with your covenant. You can choose to love anyone. How else do you explain arranged marriages all over the world that last for a lifetime? The Bible is very serious about this. In your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, you know the passage well. You've probably heard it at a wedding. If we, do we do weddings anymore? I don't know. I'm just kidding, you know? We did them in our house, but we didn't have very many people there. 1 Corinthians 13, what does Paul say? He gives us kind of God's definition of love. Love is patient. Where's the emotion? Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. God says, here is love. And what is it? It's choices, folks. There's no emotion there. Not love is passion. Love is, you know, whatever. And you can stay in any relationship because of fun intimacy. But that's not a marriage. Because in a marriage, you have to make choices. Two sinful people living together are going to have trouble. So each of you needs to learn how to make good choices. And if your relationship is only based on fun and emotion, what is left when life gets hard? Why do you think that the Bible discourages premarital sex? Because it is the fun. And the fun leads to great emotions. And God created sex as a wedding gift because he says, you know, this is going to be fun and it's, you're going to love it because it is fun. No matter where you use it, it's fun. And if you start playing with it ahead of time, you will base your relationship on the fun and on the emotions. 
because it is fun. But when you get married, you realize then, I was committed to the fun, but not to the choices. And when we we are committed to the emotions and the fun sex, if that's all you base your relationship upon, you're going to be in trouble. Think about it. When God defines love, he doesn't begin with euphoric and wonderful. He begins with what? What's the first thing? Patience. Why patience? Because, Jim, when you marry Christy, what is she going to need most of all? My patience. And your marriage, what do you do when your spouse has, you know, above everything else? What do you need in that relationship? You need patience. Because marriage isn't easy or fair. If it was easy or fair, you wouldn't need patience. Well, your spouse would need it with you, but that's another story. Are you harsh in your marriage? Are you mean? See, love isn't harsh. Love is what? Love is kind. So are you kind? Does this text describe your marriage? The choices you make? You don't envy. You don't boast, well, he did that again, but I never do that. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor your mate. It delights not in evil, but truth. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Do you know how many times you've done that? They're choices you have to make. Love is a choice. It is not an emotion. And the best news is, is this. If love really is a choice, then you could go back and start again. You can begin to make the right choices. And the emotions can come. They'll come later. They won't be there all the time, but they can come. Have you ever watched The Bachelor? (laughs) You take 30 people, you throw them into a mansion that you can never afford. You take them on trips and dates that require helicopters and beautiful scenery. And there's always a pool and a hot tub. And you fly them to all of these exotic places. And out of those 30 people, you think the producers are so smart that out of the billions of people on the planet, they're going to find your soulmate? Out of those 30? Really? No. In the right setting and with enough time, they can manufacture love, which is what they do. Because it's all emotion. It's not a choice. And you can fall in love with three or four of those people until you have to make a decision. They do it because the underlying assumption of the world system is that love is an emotion. So if we get the right LED lights and the right locations and the right jacuzzi, we can produce love. And that's true. You can produce emotion. And if that is love, then they can do it. But love is a choice. It's not an emotion. Love is a decision you make moment by moment in life. Number three, marriage has to be a pursuit of holiness, not happiness. You see, the greatest challenge of my life is not the people around me. It is this. 
what's going on inside of me. You will not be the husband that you need to be for your wife. You will not be the wife that you need to be for your husband unless you take responsibility to cultivate what? Your own spiritual life. What does your marriage need? Your marriage needs you to focus on learning to love more than anything else. A couple of writers put it this way. Our marriages are the testing ground for God to win us to himself. Our marriages are basic training for the one marriage that will not disappoint. See, it's always bigger than we think it is. If I'm married only for my happiness, and my happiness wanes for whatever reason, then one little spark is going to set the whole wilderness on fire and destroy everything. But what if marriage is sacred? Because the biggest tool that God wants to use in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ is your marriage. Maybe your marriage is really designed to help you to deepen your relationship with God. Maybe as you learn to practice forgiveness and experience the ecstasy of love and create a history with your spouse, maybe that's how you discover the real character of Jesus Christ and what it looks like within you. You see, only an open, teachable person can develop the characteristics needed to be a wonderful marriage partner. God wants us holy and obedient, not happy. That's not the goal. So holiness, like marriage, takes daily attention. And if you're not working on your holiness, and if you're not working on your marriage daily, you are working against it. If you're not working on making the right choices every day, sometimes moment by moment, you're working against it. You don't get a dog and then not feed it. It'll die. How many dead plants have we seen in our houses? We get them and we don't water them. Well, hello. And God says, you're back in the land now. I'm going to go silent until Jesus comes. Oh, how I hope you understand the seriousness of your marriage relationship. You can do whatever you want at home all week and expect me and, and bring me leftovers on Sunday. That's not the way it works. Work on your marriages. Make the choice today to start loving one another. Because what does unfaithfulness in relationships look like? It means we've got busted relationships. It means we might have married outside the faith. And it means you got to stay married. you got to work on your relationship. That's something that requires some choices on your part. And the power of the Holy Spirit. You need help with either part? We're here. Father, we thank you this morning that Malachi gets really practical. And yet, as he does, he reveals your heart. And he reveals to us the importance of our relationships within the community, of the decisions we make 
for a spouse and for how we treat that spouse once we're in that relationship. Father, open our eyes that we might see your faithfulness and your goodness to us, that it might motivate us to be faithful with each other as well. In Jesus' name, amen.